2 Samuel chapter 11. At the return of the year, at the time when kings go out, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. That evening, David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to look at. David sent and inquired after the woman. One said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, Uriah the Hittite's wife? David sent messengers, messengers and took her, and she came into him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, and said, I am with child. David sent to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked him how Joab did, and how the people fared, and how the war prospered. David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah departed out of the king's house, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and didn't go down to his house. When they had told David, saying, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Haven't you come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark, Israel, and Judah are staying in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in an open field. Shall I then go into my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next day. When David had called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. At evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his lord, but he didn't go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He wrote in the letter saying, Send Uriah to the forefront of the hottest battle, and retreat from him, that he may be struck and die. When Joab kept watch on the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that valiant men were. The men of the city went out and fought with Joab. Some of the people fell, even of David's servants, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. And he commanded the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all these things concerning the war to the king, it shall be that if the king's wrath arise, and he asks you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Didn't a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out to us into the field, and we were on them even to the entrance of the gate. The shooters shot at your servants from off the wall, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Tell Joab, don't let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. 
Make your battle stronger against the city and overthrow it. Encourage him. When Uriah's wife heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the mourning was past, David sent and took her home to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. That last sentence, um, the thing that he had done displeased Yahweh or displeased God is a great understatement. <laughs> uh, the whole chapter is, is, is a very disappointing turn of events in, in the life of David. And it's the beginning of the bad chapters. Now, we in the last chapter, we explained that that, that was the setting for this chapter. So technically, the bad chapters began in chapter 10. But chapter 11 is where we hear that David's heart has gone in the wrong direction and the rest of the story of David is going to be trouble. So right up to now, he's had trouble, but the Lord's been with him in every single thing and he's overcome every single thing. And the Lord is still with him. He, the Lord's promises are still faithful, but there's gonna be a whole heap of problems now come on David that he didn't have to have if he had just done what was right. So it's the start of the bad part of his life. And um, uh, David, David could have been saved a lot of the problems that happened in this chapter and a lot of the problems that happened after this chapter if he had just gone off to war. And a lot of preachers talk about this. You know, at the time when kings go off to war, David stayed at home. Everyone else went off to war, but David didn't. Now, why... Why was that? <laughs> oh, it doesn't say. It doesn't say why was that. Uh, you know, maybe he was injured. Maybe he was sick. You know, maybe he, one of the Bible commentators said he was having a midlife crisis. <laughs> uh, I, it just sounds like he's making it up to me. Like, how would you know any of this stuff? Um, but for some reason, he wasn't in the place where he was supposed to be. And there's a saying, it's not a biblical saying, but it definitely comes to mind when you read this chapter, and it's, the devil has work for idle hands. And um, when you're not in the place that you're supposed to be, um, it's easy for other things to come along that you should not normally have had to have considered or seen or thought about or you know experienced. Um, there's always something very wonderful about being where God wants you to be. And so um, we, we need to make sure we're not at home being lazy or we're not at home just being tempted by other things when we should be doing whatever the Lord called us to do. Now you might say to yourself, well, you know, I'm not a preacher, or I'm not a missionary, or I'm not in the ministry, or I'm not this, that, or the other, and you know, I don't know what God has for me. Well, I'll tell you what, one thing that the Lord calls all his people to do is to be prayerful. That's, that's a ministry that we all have. The Bible does say we're all priests. That's an Old Testament and a New Testament statement. And so every single person who follows the Lord does have a ministry. And we've, we're called to, if nothing else, be people who pray for others. And that itself is warfare, that's battle. And you're in the Lord's battle if you're a person who prays. But if you're not a person who prays, if you, if you know the Lord's called you to things, but you don't participate in them, and if you're not prayerful, it's very, very easy for your thoughts and feelings to be adjusted so that you think you're thinking good things but you're just going after what comes along, and we all do it. So David is uh, at home when he shouldn't be, and he's on the roof of the king's palace, which was in an elevated location in Jerusalem. So he had a vantage point over a lot of people's homes. 
in the in the Sunday school stories, and that, this is also a funny story to put in a Sunday school story. And it's interesting as an adult to go and read children's books and see the way that it's it's portrayed to children. I've read through the whole entire well. You know, I started reading the Bible with my children and we've read the historical parts of the Bible from Genesis right through. We read through to the Exodus. We skipped the technical parts of the law. We got back into Joshua and we've read all the way through in, into Ezra and Nehemiah now with the family. And so we read through this chapter. And uh, when we were reading this chapter, um, I was, you know, trying to explain to my children, and these were all children who were under the age of 10 at the time, uh, what the sin of adultery was. <laughs> and, uh, but the sin of murder, which was the biggest sin in this chapter, that was much easier to explain. But Sunday school stories tell this event. And uh, it's, it is important for children at a young age to realize that these things are wrong. It's very important for them to have well-formed ideas about what's right and wrong at a young age. The culture that we live in doesn't think that adultery is a sin. Now, it's a sin and it's a sin against the Lord, but even in a culture that we live in now where most people think that it's not sinful, even if that's the case, the consequences of adultery or the consequences of, of sex outside of marriage, they still mess up families in a similar way to what David's family was going to be messed up. And um, so I, wouldn't never, I would never shy away from reading every part of the Bible to my children and I did, I read through Sodom and Gomorrah and everything with my children and I just explained it at their level and I think you should too. And, uh, but in the Sunday school stories, you, it's always Bathsheba, you know, she's in a bathtub on the roof of her house and uh, David looks down and that's, that can't possibly be right because the roofs of houses in ancient times and in the Middle East today, there's lots of places that are still like this in Greece, different places where the rooftops are flat and the rooftop is almost like a second entertainment area. Like in Australia, we have a, we often have verandas or we have a deck or a, a gazebo or you know an outdoor area, but it's on the same level usually. And you go outside and it's it's an area where you can entertain or have people. Well, in in the Middle East or in the Bible times, this roof area was flat, and it was another entertainment area. And especially at night time, you could go up there and it was cool. You'd be in the stars, everyone would sit, they could eat and drink and talk. There are other parts in the Bible, for example, when Saul was anointed king by Samuel, it says they sat on the rooftop of the, on the top of the house and talked all night. So there's an example, they weren't sitting on a roof like this, they were sitting on a flat roof. Well, Bathsheba did not bathe on the roof. People didn't bathe on the roof because it was an open area where everyone could see. She would have bathed either in a courtyard with a wall, which no one could see in except for David at an elevated position, or she would have bathed in her house where no one could see except David happened to be looking through the window. And um, so what we've got here isn't just a case of, you know, her not caring that anyone could see. It was definitely a case of David um, looking when he shouldn't have. And um, there is a difference between looking and seeing. I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, we, were, um, we were at a certain place and... and a family relative, uh, an elderly relative was checking their email and an email came through that, that contained words that were, you know, rude and, you know, the type of thing that you very occasionally get in spam. I personally um, have well-trained spam filters and I never, ever, ever see any of this type of stuff. It's just gone. 
And that's one of the things I like about Gmail, not promoting Gmail because I know there are lots of other good solutions, but their spam filters work really well. And I don't see um, any emails come through. And, um, but one of, one of my elderly relatives once was checking the email and I was standing nearby, but not looking at them. And an email came in with questionable content. <laughs> and they saw it, but obviously they didn't want to see it. It was, it was forced upon them in the sense that it just appeared on the screen. And in their panic to delete the email, <laughs> they were all concerned about, you know, oh, I don't look at this type of stuff. You know, you know that, right? And, and I assured them, I know you don't look at that stuff because they were a very godly person who's lived their entire life serving the Lord, faithful, wasn't my parents. And um, so I knew the type of people they were. I knew they would never look at that stuff, but briefly, for just a second or two, they saw it. Now, this does occasionally happen to people where occasionally you're in a situation you couldn't have predicted and you'll see something. No doubt, David was up on the roof of his house, we presume, innocently, walking around, enjoying the cool air breeze when he saw something. But this is where he made his mistake, is he went from seeing to looking. And... Um, the Lord said in, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said to keep us from temptation. And um, temptation, or, you know, keep us from the evil one. That's a prayer I pray. I do pray that, and I've been praying it ever since I was a teenager, that I would not even get into positions where I see anything or experience anything that could even tempt me. And that prayers have been amazingly answered. But having said that, there have been a few times when I've gotten into positions and you have to say, you have to realize in that moment, no, I am not going to look. And so you choose to cut the temptation off and you also should pray for grace for that too. And in the New Testament, it, it says in Hebrews that Christ loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And that's a prayer I pray as well. So that if you're ever accidentally in a position where you could be tempted because you love what's right, because you hate what's wrong, it's not tempting, and you're able to just choose and say, you know, that's not right, I'm not going there. But David, he was actually someone that did love what was right, and he, he did hate what was wrong. We've seen it in his own life before this. But in this moment, he looks. He goes from seeing to looking, and he's, he follows the temptation, and he dwells on it. And so you've this is what men and women have to do. They have to choose to not, this is Christians, they have to choose to not dwell on those thoughts because they lead you to another place that, that if you had said, oh, if you had asked David before this, you know, do you want to, to do this? Do you want to go into temptation, have adultery, kill someone's husband? He would have said, no, no, because he, he, did not, he didn't like the idea of the sin and he also didn't like the idea of the consequences. But because of the temptation, and he didn't say no to it right at the beginning, it grows and becomes much, much stronger. I have to say something too. At this point, David has many, many wives. And um, there's something about going against God's plan for monogamy which, which undermines your ability to overcome temptation. I'm not an expert on this, but there are wonderful ministries in the world that, are, that talk about these things. There's a ministry in Las Vegas which is all aimed at helping men overcome pornography and women too, because a surprising number of women are also trapped in that. And they have, um, they have discovered, in some of their materials are very, very interesting, and they've discovered that the more variety that a person experiences in terms of multiple different people and multiple pictures, and the harder it is to overcome, the more addictive it becomes. 
that God's plan is for monogamy. And in monogamy, researchers also found out that in a monogamous marriage, uh, you have the greatest pleasure, the greatest long-term happiness, and of course, as we know, it's best for children, it's best for your future generations, it's best for good outcomes. And when you look at people in the Bible like David who had 22 wives, Solomon who had 300 wives plus 700 other women, and you look at all these and you see how their families turned out, you can see why. Uh, if you go onto the internet, you, you can read stories of people who are alive today in the world who have multiple wives. And that, that's interesting to hear their, their impression, but it's, it's even more interesting to hear the impressions of the women. Because a lot of the times the women will live in separate homes, uh, at least in some of the Middle Eastern countries, they live in a separate home with their children. So that a man might be wealthy and have several wives, but he'll have several houses. And each of the wives will have their own house, and he just moves between the houses. So you can see that that's very disruptive for family life. It doesn't encourage unity. It, it encourages competition. The wives are against each other. Um, or if the wives in rare circumstances agree with each other, they often agree with each other against the husband. And it gets very, very messy. And we can see why the Lord's plan was for monogamy. In the beginning, God made Adam and Eve. We see God's plan right from the beginning. And it's also, monogamy is also a picture to us of God's plan for the church. There's one church, God loves his bride, and um, we're going to be with him for all eternity. So um, the, the problem here begins when David gives in to temptation by going beyond just seeing. He just saw something briefly, but then he decides to look, starts to think upon it. The thoughts turn into a decision, I'm going to act, and it goes on from there and gets worse and worse and worse. And in the end, the major sin here, the, the adultery is a bad sin, but the major sin here is that he murders this man. And Uriah, if you go back, if you go forward in the Bible, we haven't got there yet, but to the end of 2 Samuel, it lists all of David's mighty men. Uriah is one of his 30 mighty men. So this is a close associate. This is like a friend. So he's betrayed a friend. And this man, Uriah, was incredibly loyal and um, had been with David through all the difficult years when they were running from Saul. So it's not just murder, which is bad enough on its own, uh, where you, know, you don't know the victim. This is murder of someone that he knew well, loved well, someone who trusted him, someone who would give his life for him. It was betrayal. And it's no wonder that it says at the end of this chapter that the Lord was greatly displeased because he was. So um, in the next chapter, we're going to see, uh, and beyond, we're going to start to see the consequences of it. We're going to see how David reacted to what happened, you know, as he gathered his thoughts and realized what had happened and his, the reaction. But I wanted to just mention here um, that there are four, four areas in life that every Christian must learn to overcome in. And this is worth mentioning here um, because it, it's just so true. It's not that there's only four. There are, there are more than four. And it's not that there are people who don't go through other big major struggles in their lives. For example, there are people who will, who will live in countries where there's persecution. So being a Christian in a place like that will require bravery and um, you know, even being willing to die for your faith. There are other challenges that I'm not going to mention here in these four. Um, but in general, there are four challenges that all believers will go through and they're four significant challenges. And here they are. Number one, learning to discipline yourself so as to be um, prayerful. You know, learning to pray. All Christians who are, 
if, if you want to know the Lord and walk with him, you've got to learn to pray, and it involves discipline and overcoming. And a lot of people in the West, they never really overcome this area. They only ever kind of pray in fits and starts their entire life. But there's something wonderful about learning to overcome and becoming faithful in prayer. And this is the first of the four, and it actually helps with the other three. And this is the one area that I overcame when I was just 17 years old. I had always prayed in fits and starts all through my teenage years, but when I was 17, there was a breakthrough and I became someone who regularly prayed. And it has helped me with, with every other area in life. The other three are things you have to learn to not do. <laughs> and, and here they are. You have to overcome the fear of man, what people think of you, people-pleasing and all of that. You have to overcome the love of money and wanting to get things for yourself and get ahead in life. It's not that, it's not that being blessed isn't good. It's just that our life, that's not the God and the goal of our life. And the last one, we have to overcome the lusts of the flesh. Usually it's the whole area of sexual immorality, which is tempting to everyone in various different ways. So these are the four things. We've got to learn to pray, learn to overcome the fear of man, learn to overcome the love of money, and learn to overcome the lusts of the flesh. And these are four areas which everyone will struggle with, but other people have extra struggles on top of these as well. So I wanted to say that the only way we can really overcome these is by grace. It, grace is something where, which you receive from the Lord in response to faith. You go to him in faith and you pray, the Lord gives you grace. But it's not something that's passive. In other words, the Lord doesn't step in and just make you overcome. He does it hand in hand with your effort. It's not only your effort or only his effort, it's both at the same time. If you didn't have either of them, it wouldn't work. Um, but without the Lord's effort, um, your effort is meaningless. You can, be, you can have the most self-determination, the strongest will and character, and without the Lord's help, you won't overcome these things. So it needs to be of grace. And in the Bible, it says, let the weak say, I am strong. And that's what we're talking about here. You're weak, he's strong. But you need to approach these things, these four areas and other areas, and say, Lord, I am weak. I cannot overcome. But then you say, but Lord, I'm an overcomer. because You make me strong. And you have to walk in faith that you are an overcomer, but mindful that you're overcoming in his strength because of grace. So these are all the types of things I have prayed about over the years. I pray that the Lord would keep me from temptation. I pray that the Lord would help me to love righteousness and hate wickedness. I've prayed that the Lord would give me his strength and I'd be an overcomer. And um, in the whole area of temptation with the lusts of the flesh, this will be my last thought for this video. I discovered years ago that in my own personal experience that there was one thing the devil hated. <laughs> and he hated um, me praying for the salvation of lost people. And basically what I discovered was when someone, when I was tempted with a, with a sexual thought, and remember the temptations just come, the devil just lobs them in. And this is where you, you know something is put in front of you, you don't have a choice over it, but once it's there and you recognize it, now you've got a choice. And it's very, very hard sometimes to get rid of those thoughts when the devil is lobbing them in. But I discovered that the devil, what he really hated was praying for the salvation of the lost. And so I said to the devil one day, I said, that's it. <laughs> I said, if you tempt me, you're reminding me to pray for the salvation of the lost. It's my reminder. And so the next time I was tempted, which wasn't very, it was only a few days after that, there was a temptation came into my mind. I said, aha, 
I started praying for the salvation of the lost. And I prayed a solidly good prayer. Because I figure if you're going to do it, you might as well make it be meaningful and, and good. You might as well make it hurt the devil. He doesn't want to be a reminder to you to pray for the salvation of the lost. Or, in your case, it could be to worship Christ. You might say, oh, you know, every time I get a temptation, it's going to be a reminder to worship Christ. <laughs> and make sure the devil knows. You say, devil, I've decided. <laughs> this is what I'm doing. It's amazing how quickly the temptations are gone. The devil does not want to, um, to be the cause of the reminder that you're going to do something good. And, but what he will do is if, he, if you mean business and you follow through on what you say, at some point later, and it might be a year later, for me it was three or four or five years later, that another temptation came. It took years. And the devil wants to see, do you still mean business? <laughs> yep, I still mean business. <laughs> so um, that's my suggestion for a bit of a strategy for that. If David had done this, if David had had that attitude of saying, when I'm tempted, I'm going to worship the Lord, because he was such a worshipful man, this would never have happened. So Heavenly Father, I pray that grace would be given to us in abundance. Your mercy would flow to us. I pray that we would love righteousness, that we would hate wickedness. Lord, spare us from evil. Deliver us from the evil one. Let your power and your grace be given to us. Lord, may victory be given to my listeners today. In Jesus' name, amen.